Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Chof Tes, last daf of the second parak, and we'll hopefully get to start the new parak. Um, today's shoes Le'ilu Nishmas, Tzipora Bashmuel, Shimon Shol Ben Reb Yisrael Halevi, and Rivka Bas Yaakov, and Gershom Moshe Ben Meir. May their memories have a blessing, and then the Shomers have an aliyah. May their memories be a blessing, and then the Shomers have an aliyah. Um, Okay, so let's quickly, we, we read through the Mishnah yesterday, but let's quickly read through it again. So the first point of the Mishnah is called Shiva Yomim Orim Oisesukasa Keva Ubeisarai. All seven days a person must make his sukkah his fixed dwelling and his house his temporary dwelling. The Gemara will define how you do that. Um, the second point, Yordu Geshomim Emosai Mutalefanos. If it starts to rain, at what point are you allowed to go inside? And we know you don't have to sit in the sukkah in the rain. Um, so the Gemara says, Meshitisra Hamakfe, when it's enough uh, water, when it's dripping enough, that it would ruin the makafe. It's some sort of porridge. We'll define that a bit better in the Gemara. But yeah. Now, yeah, and we'll discuss, the Gemara is going to discuss this rain, um, leaving the rain, etc. So we'll discuss a few points on it when we've done it in the Gemara. Moshlu Moshe They gave a parable to what it's similar to when it rains on Sukkot. He says, A slave who comes to pour water for his master, and the water spills on him. Chaos in the Gemara is that the master is throwing, he comes to pour some wine, and remember they used to dilute their wine, so he comes to it, and the water, and the water spills. Is it that the owner, the master, spills water on the slave? Or is it that the slave, um, or the or the water, or spills on this, or the or the slave spills the water? That we'll see in the Gemara. But very simply, it's because remember, if we meant to be doing a mitzvah and Hashem does something, makes it rain, which kind of tells us, I don't want you to do your mitzvah. Don't want you to do your mitzvah. Well, then it's time to. Uh, then it's a it's a bad sign. Says Toner Abonon, the Gemara says, Kol Shiva Hay the Gemara the Gemara says, Toner Abonon Kol Shiva Hayomim Adam Oisei Sukkot or Keva V'Sukkot Ubeis Orai. All seven days, a person must make his house temporary, his sukkah, his fixed dwelling, and his house is temporary dwelling. Kaitzar, how does he do that? Hoyulok Kalim Noim Malin LeSukkah Matzos Nos. When a person he must take in his nas Kalim. You don't take your paper cutlery, your, your plastic cutlery and your paper and plastic. You take in your nice kalim and other other nice things that you generally make your runas with, your candlesticks, etc. Those sort of things. You take them in. If you have nice linen, you take your nice beds and your linen into your sukkah. You eat, you drink and you relax in the sukkah. And what's the source? The Ton Rabon. And now we're going to have a slightly more, the price is basically going to be the exact same. It just adds in the source. Very similar. It says, It says you must dwell in your sukkah, which tells us like you dwell in your home. So that's the source for this requirement to make your sukkah, your, your, make your temporary dwelling, your sukkah, your permanent dwelling on sukkahs. Again, how do you do that? Kaitzad, Mikan Omru, from here they said, Mikol Shivas Hayomim Oise Onam Sukkos Okevo Vaisorai, make your sukkah permanent and your house temporary. Kaitzad, how do you do that? Hoyulok Kalim Noi Malin the Sukkah, Mitsuas Nas Malin the Sukkah, if you have Nas 
kalim, nice utensils, etc. You take them into the sukkah, nice uh, beds or linen, you take them into the sukkah. You eat, drink, and relax in the sukkah, pace around, uh, sit there and chat. And you learn in the sukkah. So this price has added two points to the previous price, which added a few points onto the Mishnah. It's just interesting to watch the progression, how the Gomorrah does it. The Mishnah just told us that you must make your sukkah fixed, and you make your sukkah fixed and your house temporary. The first price we brought elaborated on exactly what that means. And then the third price, it told us the source elaborated on what it means and added in this point of you must also learn in your sukkah. Does any, is that true? Well, you must really learn in your sukkah. Chumash and Mishnah, you should learn in your sukkah, but Gemara, you should learn outside of the sukkah. So it seems, well, I mean, she said to Mashana and learn, which would generally we would say, learning Gemara, etc. So why does it say you do that out? You see, you do it outside the sukkah. So he says, no, no, no difficulty. Here's where you reading through it. Are almost like reviewing it, going through it quickly, and you're doing your dafyomi shir and hobe and here is when you're going into it in a deep, with a deep analysis and learning it deeply. We'll explain which ones, which shortly, but let's just think. Where do we see that there's such a difference that there are these two styles of learning? Says ki Rami Barhama, like Rav and Rami Barhama, ki havu kaime mikame de Rabchizda, when they would go before Rabchizda, Marati Bagamora, Bahariyadadi, they would race through the Sugya before they were going into Shir. Again, that's kind of their preparation is that they would run through the Gomorrahs or the relevant sources that they were going to discuss, and then Baharama Ainu Baswara, and then they would analyze it with logic and thought processes and uh, and go into it. Um, so what do we so, so firstly, what we've proven from here is that there are two types of learning, and we made a distinction that the one you must do in your sukkah and the one you don't have to do in your sukkah. I'm going to assume that you don't have to. Rashi explains which one's which. He says the running through of the sukkah, and, and there's actually we find this all the time. Many yeshivas have it as well. They have a morning seder where they or a seder where they go into the Gemara carefully, analyzing every sentence and every word and comparing Rashi and Tosfos and bringing in other opinions to be able to understand it as deeply and clearly as possible and bring out the principles. And then they have an afternoon seder where they do what's called girsa or bakus. They run through, they go a bit quicker, obviously trying to get a basic understanding, a good basic understanding, but going through it much quicker. So we do find these two types of learning. Um, obviously also we see from Rav, um, from how Rabbi Rami Bar Chama, how Rava and Rami Bar Chama used to prepare for Shir, is that you must first have a good run through of the Gemara before you start analyzing. It's a mistake lots of people make is they think, you know what, I want to just take a sugya and learn every single commentary on it or plumb the depth of that little piece. You actually have to run through a large, uh, a lot of material or run through at least the whole piece before you ana- start analyzing it line by line. Um, so that's, uh, that, that, I mean, that could be a lesson from here. Yeah. Now, how does that fit in with the sukkah? So Rashi says, you know, for the deep analysis, for Iun, you need fresh air, you need open space, you can't sit in a confined small sukkah. Remember, their sukkah, their sukkahs were much more were smaller and more restrictive, and not a nice, not, you need fresh air, Need maybe more sunlight to come in, etc. 
So you would sit, so therefore you don't have to learn in the sukkah. But girsa, when you're just running through the Gomorrahs, reviewing it or preparing it, uh, there you should go into the sukkah. Um, the Rach, interesting, learns the other way around. He says, no. He says, running through the sukkah, girsa, that's not, that's just like a more awry sort of thing. You have a few minutes, so you run through some sukkahs, you do a bit of revision. He says, that you don't have to do in your sukkah. But even when you're sitting down to analyze the Gomorrah, well, there it requires, that's more keva, that's a more fixed activity. And therefore, that you have to do in the sukkah. So it's interesting how Turi Shonim take both of these and uh, learn the opposite halacha, which one must be done in the sukkah and which one can be done outside the sukkah. Okay, let's carry on. Third line of Chop Tesam Aleph. Drinking cups can be brought into the sukkah and mani michle bar but your food kalim, what's used for eating, should be taken outside of the sukkah. What Rashi explains is we're discussing used. You finished your meal. It's disrespectful for the sukkah to leave your dirty dishes in there. But your cups, they don't have that same, uh, gets repulsiveness. Obviously not speaking about a big but They don't have that same repulsiveness. So when you finish eating, you must take your plates and uh, knives and forks, your used plates and knives and forks in. But your drinking things, you don't have to, your cups, you can leave your wine glass and your cold drink glass or your mug of, or your mug, coffee mug, you can leave in the sukkah. You don't have to take it out immediately. Tosfos learn differently. Tosfos say, no, what it's referring to is like the pots and those things that you use to serve from. And this is brought to halacha. Just as you wouldn't take a pot of soup, generally you won't take a pot of soup to the dining room table. If you're having a nice meal, you're not going to take the soup to the dining room table. You're going to serve from the kitchen. Or you're not going to take the serving bowl, the pot that the the roast meat that uh, was the, um, prepared in, you're not going to take that to the table. So, so too, you don't take it into your sukkah. So that's what we're referring to, the, the kalim, the pots and pans and things that the food is prepared on in, which you wouldn't normally take to your dining room, you mustn't take into your sukkah. In chatzbev, shochil barmetal lasa, these certain types of jugs and pitchers must not be brought into the sukkah. I feel like it's, I mean, literally, it would be a wooden jug or an earthenware jug, but I would imagine our equivalent would kind of be like one of those five-liter uh, five water things or your water cooler. You don't leave a water cooler, one of those, uh, well, I don't know, I forgot they're called uh, Aquazania water things. You're not going to leave one in your dining room, so you don't bring it into your sukkah. Um, uh, look, I'm not paskilling, I'm saying it just in my mind, that's what it's similar, most similar to. Vishraka bimetalalasa v'omriloi barmetalalasa. Some say your candles you can leave in the sukkah, and some say your candles you should not bring into the sukkah. It would be also to bring them in. It says, below pligi, they're not arguing, hoba sukkah gadola, hoba sukkah katana, here's with a large sukkah, and here's with a small sukkah. Why shouldn't you bring your candles into a small sukkah? Remember the minimum tiny little sukkah, the minimum size, why should you not have your, bring your candles in? So, I mean, the one obvious reason, and the reason you bring this, is you're going to cause a fire. Remember, the schach is all uh, plant material, so it will catch a light. And that's how many Rishonim learn. Rashi adds a point. It's not clear whether he's arguing or adding a point, but he says also we're talking about like a cheres lamp. I mean, the other Rishonim wouldn't, it wouldn't matter what type of fire, what type of lamp or candle you're using according to the other Rishonim. Any fire hazard, you do not bring, don't bring a fire hazard into your sukkah. Um, 
However, if it's a large sukkah, tall sukkah, there's nothing wrong with bringing your candles in. Rashi seems to, I don't know, it's not clear if he's arguing or adding to it, but Rashi says not only if, if it's a cheres, an earthenware lamp, well that once, it's, once you've lit an earthenware lamp, it becomes repulsive. So what it's saying is, if you have a large sukkah, you can have your earthenware lamp in because you won't really notice it. But if it's this tiny, crowded sukkah, well then it's going to be more in your face and repulsive, and therefore you shouldn't keep it there. Yordu Kashamim, the next clause of the Mishnah was, if it starts to rain, you can leave your sukkah. Now we said that the amount, how we said at what point can you leave your sukkah when it starts to rain? That's when it rains enough to ruin the porridge. Now just interestingly, the run says that this is all to when you're in your sukkah already, when are you allowed to leave? But regarding if you're going into your sukkah, obviously even if it's just dripping, you're not going to leave one room in your house to go to the room that's already dripping. You know, if you sat down at your dining room table and the leak starts, and it's a tiny little dripping from the leak, you might decide to finish your su'uda. So, so to in the sukkah, finish your su'uda. Don't race inside. But, um, but with the, when, to go out into the sukkah, even if it's much less, you wouldn't have to. Now, Tana, Misha, Tisra, Hamak, Veshel, Grisin. A bride clarified this to be a porridge or a dish of split green, uh, beans. Now, the, this get ruins. With, it's not talking about a downpour. Like your soup, your soup's not really going to get ruined if a bit of rain drips in it. Most soups. But grease in porridge will get ruined even with a few drops. As soon as it starts to rain enough, which is not such a big rain, that grease in, this dish of grease in would get ruined. You can go inside. When Abai was sitting... Before Rav Yosef, but Matalu Lasin the Sukkah, Noshiv Zeikav Akom Aisit Zivusa. It started to rain, so there were like these little splinters, little bits of uh, the schach floating around the Sukkah. He says, "Omalu Rav Yosef, Ponoli Manai Mahacha." So Rav Yosef says, "You know what? I think it's time to go inside. Let's go inside." So Omalu Abaya, Mahot Ran Mishetishrachamakve. But wait, the Mishnah says it's when the porridge would get ruined. This isn't significant. This wind, granted, it's blowing a bit of. Uh, thing from the schach around, that's not enough to ruin the food yet. It says, He says, you know what, for me, it is, uh, I'm very sensitive, I'm a nino dati, I'm very sensitive, and therefore this bothers me a lot, that there might even be one tiny drop of schach uh, in my food, splinter of schach in my food, that bothers me a lot, I'm going, I can go inside. I mean, I think, I was wondering, here is Abaye who's sitting by his Rebbe. Would he be allowed to go inside? Because it doesn't bother Abaye. So would he be allowed to go inside? I'm not sure. I was thinking about that. I don't know the answer. Um, a second interesting point I was um, thinking, I just thought of now. Um, I mean, well, yeah. So for us, if you knew that there was a drops of splinters of your schach or leaves from your schach dripping into, into your food, you'd be bothered by it. So therefore, if it starts to, uh, if there's a strong wind and you start to get a bit dusty in your sukkah, there's a good chance you'd be allowed to go out of your sukkah. What happened if you were eating in your sukkah and it started to rain? The yorad, and then he went back inside. Remember, it always uses the, down, the language of going up to your sukkah and down from your sukkah, because their sukkahs were mostly on the roof. But it means he left his sukkah. It says, we, you don't have to bother to go back up until your sukkah, 
um, to finish your meal. Right, so you went into your sukkah and you started eating and it was raining. So then you went inside and you started finishing your meal inside. You don't have to, oh, it stopped raining, let's race, race straight out into the sukkah. No, you can finish your meal. What happens if you were sleeping in the sukkah and it started to rain? So obviously you left the sukkah. You don't have to sleep in the rain. It says, We don't expect him to go back into the sukkah until it gets light. It says, does that mean until he wakes up or until it gets light? And what happens if he wakes up very early? Genesis might be relevant for you. He wakes up at like 4 a.m. Um, and now, so he's up, but it's not yet light. Does he have to go back into his sukkah, which he didn't sleep in because it was raining? So he says, Toshma, So the Bryce says, until it gets light and dawn, and dawns. He says, Tarti. How can you tell me what? When do I have to go back into the sukkah? I, st- I went. I, I slept in my bed at, in my room because it was raining, and then it stopped raining. Now you're telling me when do I have to go back into the sukkah? When it starts to get light and when it's dawn. But tarti, those are two different times, so that can't be shut in the price. It says or until he wakes up and it's dawn. Uh, you need to meet both those requirements. So, and as I mentioned yesterday, we're not so particular to go, um, to go sleep in the sukkah. Um, for, for whatever reasons, we're not so particular to sleep in the sukkah. I'm not sure whether it's even 100% correct, but many great, great rabbis don't sleep in their sukkah, so we have what to rely on. Um, so obviously these halachas are not as relevant to us, but you get the idea. Again, if you, I can, I can, uh, I guess I can testify if I, if in the middle of the night I have to go to my daughter's bed unless I don't fall asleep by the time she falls asleep I'm not going to go back to my bed although sometimes she kicks off the blankets and then in winter I definitely will um, but that's the like that's what it is so so to in your sukkah you go to one bed and you fall asleep there you don't have to go back to your sukkah because it's your sukkah and you're supposed to sleep in your sukkah um, we said what's it comparable to when it rains on sukkah so he says we said it's comparable to a servant who goes to pour his master or mix his master's drink and the water spills now there, it was a little bit unclear who spills the water on who is it the servant pouring the water on the slave or is it the slave pouring the water um, on the spilling the water on the master. Sorry, is it the servant spilling the water on the master, or the other way around, the master pouring the servant? I just, just want to get one. Um, so Rashi explains the question as follows. I'm just going to read Rashi because I think he says it the clearest. Mishav um, says, "Evid doesn't mean that the servant spills the water on the master. and then." And this is what the Mishnah would be teaching. The slave is trying to serve his master, but he's not doing his service correctly. And therefore, if it rains on Sukkot, it's a sign that Bnei Israel aren't doing their avoider correctly. That's the, maybe that's shut in the parable. Spilling the water, the rain, the water spilling is very much like us. Not, um, is like a slave who spills when he's trying to do his work. And the responsibility is on the Jews to pick up their level of avoida. 
or this is what it's saying. The master pours the water in the face of the slave. saying, get out. I don't want your service. And the rain coming down is the spilling of the jug. Either way, it's a simon klal. It's a bad sign. Either it's that the Jews are not serving correctly, or for whatever reason, it's Hashem showing His displeasure at the Jewish people. But which one is the marshal? Says Tan Rabbanon. So we learned in a brisa. Oh, sorry, Toshma. The Tanya Shofach Loi Rabo Kiton Alponav Omer Loi Efshibim B'Shimo Sheikh. Um, a Bryce says it more explicitly if the master pours the water in the slave's face and says I don't want your service so that's the parable here is that when it rains on Sukkot it's Hashem saying I don't want your mitzvah we're going out into the Sukkot to do the mitzvah and Hashem saying I don't want your mitzvah now there were quite a few collected quite a few points to discuss on this last piece um, one is the Mishnah uses the languages when is it permitted to go inside? Implying that if you want to stay in the sukkah, you don't have to. Which firstly, the Ramah says, anyone who sits in the sukkah when it's raining, is Nikra Hedjot, is called a fool. There's no more mitzvah of sitting in the sukkah. To the degree, there's another question that comes up. We learned earlier that the sukkah is Osur Bahano. You're not allowed to get benefit from the sukkah. You have to use it for the mitzvah. There it was more in the context of taking down, the, if you hang fruit on the wall as decoration, can you take the fruit and eat it, etc. But let me say, if it's not, if you're sitting in the sukkah in rain when you're not supposed to, then it, you're getting benefit from your sukkah for no reason. Um, so that's, um, and that would be also, so someone is saying, no, the sukkah actually loses its status of a sukkah when it starts to rain. Okay, but that's an interesting discussion. And that's the general the general Ashkenazi practice is that if it rains, we go inside and we don't sit in the sukkah and we don't even hold it's a mitzvah to sit in the sukkah. But Chassidim, very interesting, I know Chabad are very, um, I remember my Chabad neighbors and stuff, and you hear they're very, very strict. They don't need the sukkah for nothing. It can be pouring, storming, and they say sitting in their sukkah. And I think it's quite a few Chassidim have that practice, that they don't leave the sukkah where it's rain. And in a way they say, well, it's, it's more mitzta'er for us to have to leave the sukkah and go inside than to sit in the rain. So granted, the reason, the, the leniency to leave the sukkah when it's raining is it's mitzvah, it's uncomfortable, so you can go inside. They say that the idea of having to leave the sukkah is so much worse for us, therefore we want to stay in the sukkah. But as I said, the, the common practice is that we don't sit in the sukkah when it's raining. We view it like the Ramor says, as only a fool would do that. There's no mitzvah and you just... Um, never mind, mind any time you're not obligated in a mitzvah and you do it, it's called a hedjot, but to sit in the rain pretending to serve Hashem, especially in light of this parable that it's Hashem saying, we don't, I don't want your service, is a bit is silly. Um, that's how we would understand it. Um, another point just to highlight is that this, par- um, this parable, the, they say, is only when, in Eretz stroll where it's not really meant to rain. It's not the rainy season. So therefore, if it rains, it's a bad sign. But if you're in a country where it is the rainy season, well, if it rains on Sukkot, it's not a bad sign. It's not a simon klala. Um, yeah. Then there's another question. Is Remember, the obligation to sit in the Sukkot is separ- um, on the first night is different to the rest of the seven days. 
So how does this curse fall in? Is it specifically on the first night when you have to eat in the sukkah and then it rains so you can't really eat in the sukkah or you run into trouble? Should you be eating in the sukkah in the raining? Maybe that's when the issue is. Or maybe it's only the other nights when it is flexible. If you want to eat in the sukkah, then you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And now it's, oh, you want to be in the sukkah, you can. You don't want to be in the sukkah, you don't have to. And then it starts to rain. You can't be in the sukkah. Maybe that's when it's bad. So that's an interesting discussion. Which one's worse? Um, yeah. And then just one last point to mention on this is uh, would this apply by other mitzvahs? I heard an uh, interesting question. Like, for example, if you want to say Kiddush Levona and it's all cloudy, is that also a simon klal or not? So that's uh, another discussion, something to think about. Okay, let's carry on in the Gemara. Um, Once we've mentioned that rain on this natural phenomena of rain on Sukkot is, is not good, is a... Is a is, is bad, we've got to mention a whole other natural phenomena that signify something not good. It says, When the sun is loike, that means generally translated as when there's an eclipse. It's a bad sign for the whole world. It's similar to a human king who made a feast for his, uh, for his servants, for his subjects. Lifnehem, and he put lamps before them. Kasalem, he got angry with them. Take the lamp and let them sit in darkness. So that's the eclipse symbolizes that. Tanya Rebbe Meir, Omer Rebbe Meir says, "Kolzman shemaoiras loikin simon rolas anem shel Yisrael." When the maoiras, that generally refers to the moon and the stars, are are struck. Either maybe a lunar eclipse or for whatever reason you can't see them, that's a bad sign for Yisrael. And that's because they're accustomed to their makosayim. When you note when there's a natural phenomena and it's signifying an event, it's most relevant to the Jews who are punished through natural phenomena. So that's something I think very deep to think about is that often when things are going on in the world, we often think, oh look, it's happening in that country or it's didn't affect me or it was in another city. But remember, these natural phenomena largely come to punish Jews or to remind Jews to get better. Not always, but that's largely the fact. This is similar to a teacher who comes into school, into the classroom, holding his uh, stick. Which child is the most scared when he sees the teacher walking with his stick? It's the child who gets beaten every day. That uh, The naughty child who gets beaten every day. The child who's picked on by the teacher. He's the one who's most afraid. So, so too, Jews, when you see the simanim, we should be most afraid. Also, I guess in our kolos, we've been the ones who have been most afflicted. Specifically, when the sun gets afflicted, that's a bad sign for non-Jews or for outer worshippers. If the moon is struck, dimmed or something. Simon Rolos and Aim Yisrael, that's a bad sign for the enemies of Israel. Obviously that's a met uh, euphemism for Israel. Because non Jew the Jews count their months by the moon. So the moon is representative of Bene Israel. And the sun is representative of the non-Jews. I'm going to say it as eclipse, but it could mean some other natural phenomena that makes the sun dim. Um, but if it happens when the sun's in the east, 
It's bad for those in the east. Bamarav in the west, it's bad for those in the west. Simon Rala, Yoshimaru. Simon Rola, If it happens when it's in the middle of the sky, that's obviously bad for everyone. If the sun turns more red, that's a sign that there will be sword, I war. Lesak, if it goes dark, arrows of famine are coming to the world. If it's both, a, if it's darkened and red, reddish, then it's a sign that both war and famine is coming to the world. If it happens at sunset, the punishments will are way are, del- are being delayed. Uh, they'll come, but they're being delayed. Why? Because it's waited the whole day for it, so the punishments are also waiting. Be it siyasa, but if it happens at sunrise, when the sun comes out, then it's coming soon. Some say, switch it around. I think the symbolism is if you switch it around, if it goes, if the sun is afflicted at the end of the day, it symbolizes kind of the hastening of night, and night always represents trouble. There's no nation that gets punished where its angel is not punished with it. Shinemar as the Pasuk says, with the gods of the Egyptians, I will also judge. I seems each nation has a representative angel, and when Hashem punishes that nation, obviously that angel is also being judged and punished. When Bnei Yisrael are fulfilling the will of Hashem, they don't have to be afraid of any of the above. Shenemar, as the Apostle says, Hashem, Hashem, so Hashem as says, Don't learn from the non-Jews. And from the signs of the heavens, don't be afraid. It's only the non-Jews who have to be afraid of them. Okay, so these... We see that only non-Jews have to be afraid and Jews don't. But again, this is when the Jews are fulfilling the will of Hashem. And this is often we say Jews aren't really bound by nature. So just because they're these... Now, yeah, I've got back a step. Um, there's a common question, but we, they can predict when there'll be an eclipse. And they can predict where you will see the eclipse, what parts of the world... What time you'll see it, whether it will be a full eclipse or a, sol, a partial eclipse, you can predict an eclipse. And so it's with the lunar eclipse. So what are they coming to tell us? That if there's a, oh, yeah, it's more relevant to the next piece, but the next piece is going to, but it is real. Um, what is it, just on the piece we just done, what is, what is it, how can you tell me that it's something that's definitely going to happen, is definitely a sign that there's going to be punishment in the world. And on the next piece, we're going to see specific punishments that different natural phenomena represent. It's like certain Averis, it sounds like the Gomorrah is saying that certain Averis trigger certain um, trigger certain natural phenomena. Now obvious, and again, if you can predict the eclipses, if you can predict when these things will happen, how can you say, not predict based on like a thing but based on uh, mathematical calculations you calculate the orbit of the sun around the earth and where the moon will be and when they cross paths then you have an eclipse so they vary they part of the natural world so what does it mean that they symbolize these things so i think one explanation is that in a way they're they're uh, what would be the word they're uh, they're pagams they're they're blemishes in the system 
by the fact that the sun can be blocked out for the moon for a few minutes, even though it might only be every few years or whatever it is, but the fact that the sun can be blocked out by the moon, that's a fault in the creation. It's an internal error in the coding. And by the fact that the moon can disappear because of the thing, or, or it can darken, or things like that, it's, it's internal errors in the system. So what are they? They they rep they are these internal errors are underlined by the potential for those specific averas. For whatever reason, certain averas connect to certain natural phenomena like an eclipse, and the eclipse this that there is the fault in the system that there can be an eclipse is underlined by those the potential for those averas. But not specifically, if someone does Avera X, then there will be an eclipse. Now we know there will be eclipses regardless of Avera, of whether people are doing that Avera or not. But obviously it signifies that the, the damage that Avera does, and that there is, is a fault in the system that, it can, that an eclipse can happen because of those Averas. Yeah, there are four Averas, four things that cause an eclipse. A solar eclipse. It says, If the Az based in the light of the Jewish nation, the head of the Sanhedrin dies, and he doesn't get uh, mourned correctly. A woman who's a married woman who's raped in the city and no one came to save her. She was calling out for help and everyone just watched her. While Mishkav Zohar on uh, homosexual relations, while Shnei Achim Shenishbach Damum Keechor, if two brothers are killed on the same day, so Bishvil Abred Vorim Oiras Loikin, and because of four matters, the moon is struck. There's this lunar eclipse. Al Koisvei Plastar, those who write forged documents, Vaal Meida Eidos Sheker, and those who testify falsely. Now, obviously, the forged documents can't be just false documents for court and stuff because that's the same as testifying falsely. So Rashi says the forged documents refer to like documents issuing instructions in someone else's name. And Val Magale Bahema Daka, and for those who raise small animals by Eretz Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, it's an Avera to raise flock in Eretz, uh, small animals in Eretz Yisrael, like uh, sheep and thing, because it's very hard to keep them from eating in other people's land. So there's Val and those who cut down good trees. As we know, you're not supposed to cut down trees. Interesting here, it doesn't specify fruit trees. I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but those who cut down good trees that cause a lunar eclipse. And because of four things, the assets of a businessman, of a homeowner, will be handed over to the king. It says, If he keeps already paid documents. If, someone, if you lend someone money, they give you a document so you can claim from them in court. When they come to pay back the money and you say, Well, I lost the document. And you keep it so you might be able to claim at a later date instead of destroying it or handing it back to the person who borrowed the money. That's the Saveira. Va'al milvu beribus, those who led with ribus. Va'al shehoyo sofek biyodom yimchois velomichui. If someone had the ability to protest, to stop someone else doing affairs, and he doesn't. And the fourth one is, Someone who publicly um, says he will give tzedakah, and he doesn't give it. 
Rav said, because of four things, the uh, assets of a homeowner um, disappear. They descend into oblivion. It says, those who withhold paying the wages of a worker, which is actually a negative commandment. Those who steal the wages of a worker. Those who remove the yoke from their neck and put it on someone else's neck. I, I, I don't know the exact case, but if you take off your responsibilities and throw them onto someone else, that's this Avera. I imagine it could be maybe a tax, or if the government's, or if someone's trying to sue you and you just blame it on someone else, that sort of thing. And for arrogance, for Gasus Haruach is equal to all of them. Aval ba'anovim, regarding humble people, it's written, ba'anovim yushu eretz v'ta v'tsangu arov shalom. V'tsangu arov shalom. Humble people will inherit the land and they will rejoice in the great amount of shalom. Interest, just to, uh, uh, not, uh, not particularly to discuss this last point and the severity of arrogance and the mala of humility, one of the greatest character traits, being humble. Um, but if you notice, it doesn't want to end off the peric in a bad note. It's been discussing punishments and um, and then the last point is the severity of anger. And it, at the last moment, just switches it to the positive. Look at the great reward for those who are humble. So we end off the peric in a slightly lighter note. It says, Hadron Allah Hayoshan, Hadron Allah Hayoshan, Hadron Allah Hayoshan. The new peric. So we finished discussing the sukkah which I guess we discussed, building the, the sukkah. And as we pointed out before, Masechtas often follow the seder, follow the order. So the order was we discussed building the sukkah, the requirements, what's the maximum height, what's the minimum height, what's the size, what can you use for walls, what can you use for schach, etc. And then we moved on to dwelling in the sukkah, when are you obligated in the sukkah, when are you exempt from the sukkah, mitzdair potter in sukkah, if it's raining, you exempt, etc. All those halachas. And now we move on to the day of sukkahs. And what's the, the other significant mitzvah is? Lulav, the arba minim, the four species. So just before we go into um, this new parish, just a quick introduction. The Pasuk says, You will take for yourself on the first day, pre eitz hadar, beautiful fruit, which we say is the, the esro, kapos tamorim, um, a palm branch, that's the, the actual lulav, the anaf eats of us, um, that we translate as the hadas, the myrtle, and the arve nachal, the willow, the simachtem Hashem elokeichem shivas yomim, and you will rejoice or be happy and celebrate before Hashem your God for seven days. So they learn out seven requirements from that, uh, not, sorry, not seven. Um, they learn out uh, three main requirements from the Posuk regarding the mitzvah. One is Vilokachtem, which they trans which you'll see a drosha, Lekichas Tama, it must be taken whole. I you have to have all four species, not you can't have three of the four or something, and they also have to be tam and Unruined. We'll discuss that we'll see the definition of what's considered tam or not in the in the coming Gomorrah. Then Lochem. You must own it. That we know on the first day of Sukkot, you have to own your own Lulav and Esrog. You can't even borrow it, never mind if it's stolen. And then the third requirement learned in the Pasuk is Hadar. It says, Preates Hadar, it must be a beautiful fruit. So definitely the Esrog has to be um, beautiful. 
but the and there's a discussion in Rishonim whether the rest of the Arba Minim also have to have this requirement of Hadar of beautiful and it seems and it's an invalidation if it doesn't meet the halachic criteria of Hadar of beautiful then it would not be a kosher esrog. One other interesting important point so we see Lulav at least in the Beis Hamikdash there's a different discussion. That's the obligation to take lulav all seven days. And that's the end of the pasuk. It says, "V'semachtem lifnei Hashem." You'll rejoice before Hashem with your lulav shivas yomim for seven days. So in the Beis Hamikdash, there's a mitzvah to take lulav every day. But in Chutzla, in outside of the Beis Hamikdash, everywhere else in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutzla so that's the beginning of the pasuk. It says, "Lekachten lochem beyom arishon." You will take for yourself in the first day. Only the first day is the oraisa. And the following six days of Sukkot, I call well for us it's second day Yom Tov, but also and Cholamoyed Sukkot in Eretz Yisrael, it's from first day Cholamoyed to the end of Cholamoyed is only a mitzvah derabbanan to shake lulav. Okay, so bear that in mind as the discussion unfolds. So that we start off with the lulav, we're going to discuss each one separately. So this lulav hagazavayovish possible. If you have a stolen or dry lulav, it is invalid. Again, stolen, the problem is it says lochem, it must be yours. Can't can't be stolen. We'll see added things we learn from that in the Gemara. And Yavesh, if it's dry, it's possible. Obviously, you can guess what's considered dry. So the, it's going to be a mafloikas. One opinion is it's so dry that it's brittle. That's Tosfos. Other opinions are no. It's just when it changes from the green to the white, the majority of it, then it would be invalid. Um... If it's a lulav from an asherah tree, that's a tree that served as an idol. Or if it's a lulav from an irani dachas, it's invalid. What's an irani dachas? That's a, I don't, I don't know the translation, but that's a city where a majority of the residents serve Avodah Zorah. You have to put everyone in the city to, to death and destroy everything in the city. So if there's a lulav of that city, you have to burn it. And, a, and we're going to see at the end of the mission the lulav has to be a minimum size. So since it has to be burnt, we view it as if it's burnt, and it doesn't meet, meet the criteria of being a minimum size. Next point, next invalidation, niktam roisha, if its head is cut off, or nifritzu olav posel, if the leaves are torn off its posel. Now, the, what we're referring to when we say the head of the lulav is a big discussion. I'm sure you notice people are very careful when they buy the lulav to check the tip of the lulav. That's because the strictest opinion is there's what's called the tiyomes. Each of the, 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 the style of the lulav is there's the center spine and then there are the leaves coming off it. Obviously, it's closed when you get it and it's, it's young and that's why it's closed. We'll discuss in the Mishnah what happens if it starts to open, but it's closed. So the, spa, the one opinion, the most lenient, the, the, the one that the in, lenient in that the invalidation is unlikely to invalidate it, says it's the top of the spine that has to break for it to be invalid. But if any of the leaves are broken off or something, that's fine. The middle opinion is that it has to be a majority of most, or the upper leaves all, all have to be broken off for it to be invalid. But the strictest opinion, and this is we try to keep, is if the tiyomis is broken. Each of the leaves are made of uh, basically folded over. It's one leaf that's folded over. If you think about your schach, you can see the crease even in the schach when it's opened. And if you look at your lulav carefully, you'll see that each of the leaves coming off the main spine are folded over. The top center one that's folded and 
meets all the way up to the tip, that's called the tiyomis. And the one opinion is that even if the tiyomis is broken, it's invalid. So we try not have the even the top broken, and you must be very careful letting your children or grandchildren or anyone shake your lulav that they're not going to just uh, bash it around or walk into a stab it into a wall or something because if the tip breaks off and definitely a few if the leaves at the top break off it, it's invalid it's possible nifritu ala um yeah oh and if the leaves are torn off so rashi learns that they literally plucked off and tied back on we'll discuss more in the morrow nifritu ala of kosher but if the leaves start to spread it is kosher not lechatchila. It's if they spread, then it's kosher. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, Yag denu milamale. If they do start to spread, you must tie them back on so that they flush with the span. Sine harabazel kasheres. This lulav from harabazel, the palm trees of harabazel are kosher. They were a specific type of palm tree which had very short leaves, so they didn't necessarily like overlap with each other. That's still kosher. Lulav sheish boshloisha tvochim kadeilanayabar kosher, and a lulav. That has three tfochim to shake with is kosher. As we're going to see, what does it mean three tfochim to shake with? It means you have a tefach to hold and then three tfochim jutting out. Um, okay, we'll leave it here for today and we'll start the Gemara tomorrow.